1: Hi there. Welcome to new books in science, technology, and society. I'm your host for today, Carla Nappi. I recently spoke with David Kirby about his fascinating book, Lab Coats in Hollywood, Science, Scientists, and Cinema, that came out with MIT Press in 2011. Now, this is a book that's both written in an extraordinarily accessible style, so you don't have to have any background in STS to really get a lot out of it and to enjoy it. Um, but at the same time, Kirby is very careful and very clear about the intended contributions to STS in every chapter. Um, and and so um, scholars of STS will see Leviathan and the Air Pump mentioned, will see lots of classic um, and specialized work in STS being brought to bear in a discussion of, frankly, a really fun um, and really, um, I'm convinced, um, important and relevant case study. Which is, um, the, the problems inherent in, um, and the sort of, um, case study of the visual representation of, uh, scientists and the sciences in Hollywood cinema and to some extent in television. Um, this is an extraordinarily pressing set of issues, especially for anybody who, um, recently saw Prometheus or, um, is interested in some of the many summer blockbusters, um, this summer in 2012 that feature, uh, discussion of and depiction of science and the sciences and it's also just a super fun book to read and there's lots of really wonderful anecdotes in here so it's it's the kind of book that you could easily assign in a class and also easily take to bed and use for bedtime reading because it's that enjoyable so um, yeah we had a good time talking about it and i hope you enjoy hello david
0: <laughs> hello
1: We're here today to talk with David Kirby about his recent book, Lab Coats in Hollywood, Science, Scientists, and Cinema, and that just came out with the MIT Press in 2011. Now, this is a book that's a lot of fun to read. Um, It's clearly um, going to appeal to and most likely has appealed to a wide range of people and a wide range of audiences, Um, and I'm delighted to be here to talk with you about the book today, David, so thanks so much for making time for us. Oh,
0: no, it's a pleasure for me. I love talking about this topic. Topic,
1: so. It's clear from the book. Um, it's clear yeah. from the book, so that's a great thing for a reader. Yeah. So, David, can you start us off a little bit about telling us a little bit about your background? Now, You mentioned at the beginning of the book um, that you actually transitioned from a tenure-track position in biology into the field of STS, um, which is what this yeah. book firmly stands within. Can you talk a little bit about that transition for you and what, what led you to want to make that transition?
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, a, it's funny. It's a, it's a transition that my friend said was a a move to the dark side (laughs) so (laughs) moving away from the uh, bench sciences and and doing sort of quote unquote real scientific work to to look at science from uh, a cultural perspective um, is is a bit of a shift and a bit different Um, yeah, I mean I was trained as a molecular evolutionary biologist uh and did uh, a lot of lab work for my PhD and then for 5 years after that I uh taught at American University uh which is in Washington DC uh doing uh biology so teaching evolution teaching general biology and, and and classes like that um and I I really did love it uh but the one thing I didn't quite like as much as doing the lab work um and it's funny, a lot of scientists who make that sort of transition, uh, that's one of the things that, and that's one of the things scientists love, but there are certain, uh, that, that don't, yeah, that, that don't sort of love it. And so, um, I decided, uh, I did a sort of film and science, um, night at American where I would show a movie to my students and then we would talk about it. And so I got very interested in questions of science uh, and media. And I actually wrote uh, a couple of articles about the movie Gattaca right after it came out and uh, decided, you know what, this is something that I could do full time. Um, but if I was going to be doing it full time and if I was going to be doing something meaningful, uh, I had to sort of, I think, retrain to, to really look at how work is done in the humanities and the social sciences. So I got a postdoc through the National Science Foundation. They do what's called a retraining postdoc to take scientists and put them into STS or history of science or communication so that they can uh, write about science from a different perspective. Uh, So I did that work at Cornell uh, University in the Department of Science and Technology Studies and in the Department of Communication um, with a guy named Bruce Lewinstein. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's how I sort of transitioned into writing about uh, movies and science for a living.
1: Great. And how long was your postdoc, if you don't mind my asking? (laughs)
0: Uh, It was just two years. It was just, uh, yeah, it was a two-year retraining postdoc. And it was, I mean, one of the things I think that's interesting is that writing about movies is actually not that much different than writing about science. Um I actually after my postdoc at Cornell I went and taught writing for a year at, at Duke University. And um that's what I told the students. They were all science students. And I just kept telling them evidence is evidence, you know. Um, with the sciences it's it's easier to have the evidence. You got, you know, your graph with your lines. Um, but when you're writing in humanities and social sciences, the evidence is there. Uh, it just takes more work to sort of convince somebody that the evidence is saying what you want it to say. Um, so yeah, it was a two-year postdoc, but it was it was a pretty rich two years.
1: Mm-hmm. I started out in paleontology and give a similar yeah. explanation to people who are like, "What? How did you get from here to Chinese <laughs> science? What does that?" Yeah.
0: Mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like a big big leap, but um, yeah, as, as, as you know, I mean, it, it can be done. And, and uh, having both bits has been incredibly useful for me.
1: I can imagine now we um, just, this actually brings us really nicely into the book. Um, and for listeners who haven't yet had the chance to read the book, um, the book sort of works around several aspects of a major theme, and that is the role of science consultants on TV and especially in film. So most of the examples are actually from film and the negotiations of expertise that that relationship and that involvement involves. Um, now, how did you decide, given this interest, to work specifically on film and TV um, as your focus for looking at this um, this range of problems and this sort of phenomenon of the negotiation of expertise in these different realms?
0: Yeah, um, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, one of the things that drew me to the topic of the science consultants was this sort of question of expertise. Um, It was... When I when I sort of wrote these things on Gattaca, when I, I was writing about the text predominantly and the sort of bioethical issues that the text raised um, and also then some of the responses to the movie. So responses of geneticists, for example, to the movie. And I began to sort of think, well… There's a lot of work out. There's a lot of books, actually, and and articles where people talk about the science in movies and TV, uh, but no one's sort of asking the question, how did that science actually get there, right? I mean, how did those depictions and representations actually get put into a film? Who was making those decisions? And then when I did a little bit of digging, I um, realized that, um, especially when I started the book in the early 2000s... um, there weren't that many scientists working on these movies, but I did run across a lot of scientists who were working on movies, uh, and that was a sort of revelation. Okay, there are scientists working on movies and on TV shows. Uh, so then um, I sort of asked the question, well, what are these scientists doing? And that led me to this notion of expertise. Well, we can talk about a scientific expert, and you'd say, you know, you go to the general person in the street and say, what's a scientific expert do? And they say, oh, they have they have knowledge, right? They know scientific facts. That's what a scientific expert is. And then I began to realize, well, that's not actually, you know, if we can think about a scientist on a movie, that's not always what they're doing. And so I began to think, well, what would a, a, a filmmaker think of as, you know, quote unquote sciency enough that they feel they need to bring in an expert, Mm-hmm. Right. What do they think is a scientific expert? And so by using scientists' work on movies, I could really pull out and dissect a bit more about this larger question of what it means to be an expert, and in particular, what it means to be a scientific expert. Um, and if I could add just a little bit more about, you know, why TV and, and movies... um it, it's funny that most of it is actually on movies, and that was a very specific choice as to why um, movies, even over television. And some of it uh, was uh, – well, some of it was that I just liked movies. I mean I love movies, and so I wanted to write about movies. It was one of the reasons why I left science is to write about movies. So that was one of the choices. Uh, but some of it was methodological as well. Um I've since done some work on, on television. I've talked to a lot of um, one of my next projects uh, after I finished the book was on forensic television programs. So I talked to a lot of writers and producers and some of the creators of shows like CSI and Bones and some shows here in the UK uh, like Waking the Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was it was a much more difficult mode of research because uh, with a movie it's it's a single entity, right? Uh, it's it's one product. A television show especially one like CSI that's been running for you know a dozen years um, it's really hard to track down everyone who's worked on it and each episode can be different and season to season it's different uh, so for methodological reasons it was just easier to sort of nail down with the movie who were the science consultants who was the script writer who was the important production designer uh, so because of that I decided to limit myself uh, to dealing with movies
1: mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And that actually gets at something that I wanted to ask you about, which is, I mean, given the fact that this is such a fascinating topic, right? And I imagine that when you teach about this, and when you have students, you have tons of people who read this and get excited about doing this kind of work, right? So yeah. for for yourself, when you were planning the research process, what kind of process did you have to go through in order to get access? And specifically for the film project, for the for the book that we're talking about today for most of our time, um, how yeah. did you get access to the kinds of people that you wanted to talk with? And is there any particular training that you felt like you needed to undergo to conduct these interviews? If the, I imagine some of these at least were interviews. And how, can you talk about that process, both, you know, just because it's inherently interesting and in understanding the book, and also, for listeners who might be interested in potentially getting into this kind of work
0: um, yeah it's uh, I mean in terms of planning the research as you mentioned most most of the book is based on interviews that I did um, interviews with filmmakers and interviews with scientists there's some historical aspects to the book um, where I, I had to figure out um, uh, archival work and again as a scientist doing archival work was sort of was interesting um, but in terms of doing the interviews and planning those um, I, I didn't have any sort of special uh, training. I, I, I did take uh, – well, as part of my postdoc, I did take a course at Cornell on um, qualitative research methods uh, and uh, a guy named Michael Lynch um, at Cornell. He did the session on interviews um, and <laughs> it was his, – his advice came down to two things, you know, do them live if you can, you know, go in person uh, if you can, and and make sure you have batteries uh, in your <laughs> recording device, um, which is something I forgot at one point in one of the interviews. It was really a shame that I, the batteries ran out mm-hmm. at some point on it. Um, but in order to sort of find these people, it, it, it took a while. I mean, today, if I were to do the the – again today it would be much easier um now every scientist who works on a movie even the smallest bit of a movie they're crowing about it on the internet um you could find even prometheus that just came out right um there was an article in the washington post about it there are, are dozens of articles on the web where you can find every scientist who did any little bit of peaceful uh, of work on Prometheus, but back in the early 2000s, it was actually much more difficult. You looked at, I look well, I looked at um, credits, mm-hmm. the film credits to see because sometimes they would, um, and we could get into this later when we talk about compensation. But oh, that was one of the things they do for the scientists. Here's your, here's your credit, you know, right. uh, technical advisor, you know, Doctor Smith. Um, so I did that. I looked at uh, a book called the. American Film Institute uh, catalog, um, which is now online, and you could, you could search through that. So I looked through that for any indication that a scientist had worked on a movie. Um, in addition to the credits, there are also thank yous at the end of a movie. And so, know, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm one of those guys who always stays to the end of the credits. Um, and, and for this, I had to because I had to look to see, you know, we thank the following uh, individuals. Sure. so it took it took quite a bit actually um, and then asking a lot of people so when I interviewed people um, I would ask them if they had worked with anyone so for filmmakers um, in general you just go through their agent mm-hmm. um uh, and just tell them you're an academic you're a, you know um, some some didn't answer back um that's but, but yeah, for the filmmakers, for the, every scientist did. I Scientists love to talk about it. I mean, those guys, they were just excited uh, to talk to anyone about this, this work. Um, but for some of the filmmakers, you know, they're busy people. I didn't have, you know, they didn't really want to talk. But if I did get to talk to them, then I would ask them, you know, who, who else should I be talking to? Because a lot of this is informal work. And so uh, the only way to, to get certain people was to, for the filmmakers to say, oh, yeah, I think I called that paleontologist or that astronomer. Mm
1: -hmm. Great. Um, That's actually, that's really interesting. Yeah. so so getting sort of further into the book I mean you, you mentioned Prometheus and this is actually I'm, sh- I'm not going to ask you <laughs> to talk about that because I imagine lots of people are asking you to talk about that um, but the theme of um, space exploration and sort of the involvement of scientific consultants in movies that have something to do with space is actually a very prominent theme in the book it's one of the major cases um, or of um, films that you look at in different ways through the book so we will actually get to that um, yeah and I, and I do want to hear a little bit more about that in general. Okay. Okay. Um, now as we sort of move through the book, um, there are issues of, um, we'll come back to this sort of not just expertise, but if we had to point to some of the other major kind of thematic notions in STS that really permeate, um, a lot of STS work, it's not just expertise, but also issues of accuracy and authenticity and authorship. Yeah. yeah. So because I know this is a work that's meant not just to speak to um, people interested in film, right? I mean, this is written in a way that's right. very oh, yeah. accessible, but also to yeah. inform STS scholarship. Um, you yeah. do a very good job in these chapters of mentioning along the way sort of major works that shaped the way you're thinking thematically of the major themes in each chapter. So um yeah. to sort of get us into that, can you talk a little bit about um what are some of the major works that – Shaped the way you're thinking about these problems, um, maybe from the STS field and sort of um, works that shaped um, your thesis. Yeah. The
0: book. Oh. Oh. Yeah. No. This. I mean. It, um, it One. Of my, I mean, as an academic, one of my primary um, audiences, uh, I'm imagining, is the STS community, yeah, uh, even though it, it's been picked up by sort of popular presses and people talk about science and movies. Uh, my goal was to contribute something meaningful to science and technology studies, like I said, about um, notions of accuracy, but also about creation of knowledge uh, just in general. Um, but some of the works that influenced me, um, we, we could talk more about it um And although it comes from the history of science, uh, Leviathan and the Air Pump, the idea of virtual witnessing was something that was really uh, crucial in terms of my thinking about how a movie could impact the ways in which we formulate knowledge or our perspectives about the natural world could be influenced by a movie, awesome. right? And 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 so their idea of virtual witnessing, which I'm, I'm more or less co-opting. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, they talk about it in terms of literary work and, and writing scientific articles, um, but I sort of co-opted and talk about movies as a virtual witnessing technology. Right? Mm-hmm. The idea that. Um, we cannot directly see how scientists come up with their facts, right? I mean, only the scientists coming up with it actually can look through their microscope or see their radiograph and, and determine that. Uh, so a movie can have this powerful influence also because it's sort of embedded within a narrative. So Leviathan and the Air Pump was certainly a, a major influence. Um Uh, The the work of Harry Collins on expertise was something that got me thinking a lot about this. And also uh, his ideas about the core set uh, was something that I was interested in. And he wrote an article about science in um, documentaries that was also very influential um, in terms of thinking about the idea of Uh, media being removed from the production of knowledge, uh, as being something that's, that was very important. Um, so those sort of ideas coming from him were important to me. Um, Mike Lynch's work on mathematization, um, and the idea of representation was important. Mm -hmm. Along those lines, Bruno Latour's work on immutable mobiles. Um, that was also very crucial in my thinking. Um, And even though, uh, you know, within STS it can still be very controversial, the actor network uh, uh, theory notion, the notion of ally gathering, uh, for me, the scientists who work on these movies and who put forward their ideas, um, for me, that that really gets at this notion of ally gathering. They're trying to convince as many people as possible that, uh, you know, dinosaurs came from birds or that they're – Sorry, birds came from dinosaurs or that the Earth's core moves in a particular way. Um, They are trying to gather allies for their ideas. So that work was also, I think, very important for me.
1: And this also sort of gets at something that I think is very powerful in the book in which it seems like you're arguing that these – what we might think of as these two separate realms, right? Entertainment, media, and science are actually not separate from each other. And you're sort of showing us step-by-step step here very concrete cases and concrete ways in which it's not just that film acts as a way to disseminate perceptions of science to the public, but rather you're making very clear arguments here that dissemination of these ideas through entertainment media and through film in particular actually has the, the potential to impact knowledge production itself in the sciences, yeah. right? Um,
0: oh yeah, absolutely. And that was that was th- that came out of my like, two year postdoc at Cornell very strongly. Is that that was one of the things that I was really interested in doing was to say, all right, h- how can we go to this sort of extreme and figure out how even even something like a movie, even something that should be seen as fluff, can really impact the way in which um, scientists and the public at large. Perceive of the natural world. Uh, When I was doing the postdoc, um, I wish I could remember the article, um, but we read someone who who looked at math and it was sort of showing that, you know, even with mathematics, you could find some social construction uh, going on. And the idea was that by going to the most the hardest of hard sciences and finding that, that, you know, everything else sort of comes away from that. And for me, it was the same. It was like, well, if I can go to movies and show that a movie impacts the way that scientists can think about a topic, Um, that should be able to help us think about all the other things, even below that, like documentaries as well.
1: And what's, I mean, there are many examples of this that come up through the book, and we could sort of get there chapter by chapter, but since we're there right Uh now, can you um, say a little bit about one or two examples of the cases in which uh, this kind of uh, use of entertainment media to disseminate, shape, portray represent science actually did shape but um, also sort of shape knowledge production in the sciences
0: yeah I mean um, one of the uh, one, uh, one of the uh, uh, ones that I liked uh, quite a bit was from the movie King Kong um, mm-hmm. where the the consultant that they brought on uh, for their Tyrannosaurus Rex, because in King Kong uh, the the sort of Kong dinosaur battles are sort of one of the highlights of the movie, <laughs> um, so they wanted to make sure. And, and the guy Willis O'Brien who was doing the special effects, um, as well as his sculptor Marlos Delgado or sorry Marcel Delgado, they were interested in um, uh, authenticity and accuracy. So for their T Rex, they brought in a guy named Barnum Brown. And he was famous for uh, his reconstruction of T-Rex for the Natural History Museum uh, in New York. And, you know, when I give talks, I I show the sort of um, still from the movie and and say, um, you know, look at this uh, um, image. You can see that it's got three fingers and that's wrong. We know that's wrong. Now we know that's wrong. Does that mean they didn't listen to him? Well, no, it turns out that uh, they listened to him too much. Uh, At the time, he was really adamant that that Tyrannosaurus Rex had three fingers Mm -hmm. like um, Allosaurus. And he was, was absolutely adamant that they had to put it that way. Okay, But at the time, people didn't actually know whether it had three fingers or two fingers. Um, If they had talked to a guy named Charles Gilmore from the Smithsonian, um, then they would have had it as two fingers because he believed it was like Gorgosaurus. Um, But from that movie, that's an influential movie on dinosaur representation. So a lot of Tyrannosaurus Rexes after that had three fingers. And that's the way people sort of began to perceive Tyrannosaurus Rex Hmm. until much later when people actually found evidence that it actually had two fingers. So that's one of my, one of my favorite examples. Um, the one that's, um, probably the biggest example has to do with Jurassic park. Um, so Jurassic park is incredibly influential, uh, in terms of the ways in which we perceive dinosaurs. Uh, at the time, the, uh, perception of, of dinosaurs in many ways was open to debate. Um, were they warm-blooded uh, or not? Um, could they move in a particular way? Uh, did they do parenting, right? Did, did, did they actually um, parent their offspring? And the one in particular I look at in the book is the idea of birds from dinosaurs. Right. And the consultant for the, the movie, Jack Horner, was uh, very upfront about his um, – motivation for working on the film, or at least one of his motivations was to get people thinking about dinosaurs as bird-like. That was one of his motivations. And so there's a lot in the movie that, um, he helped shape that goes towards that, uh, the idea of the birds flocking or the dinosaurs hunting, he says at one point, like a flock of predators. Um, and even at the beginning of the movie, when they're looking at a velociraptor and sort of pointing at all the sort of avian features about the dinosaur, um, That was all done in mind to get people thinking about birds as dinosaurs, and that movie did. It changed the public's perception, and one of the things I show in the book is scientists are not immune from that as well, and so it changed a lot of scientists' perspectives, and if you look at scientific debate around the time or before the movie, lots of debate about this. After the movie, it becomes, you know, a black box. Now everybody thinks of dinosaurs as birds. Um, You still get some people today who disagree, uh, ornithologists, uh, developmental biologists. Many of them don't like the idea, but now it's an uphill battle for them. The, The battle has been won because of Jurassic Park, literally, that we think of birds as dinosaurs.
1: And this gets at um, not only this phenomena that you mentioned earlier, um, films acting as virtual witnessing technologies, right? Not just for the public, but also for other scientists, perhaps, that are watching the film. Um, and it yeah. also gets at these this issue that um, is featured in the same chapter, Chapter 2, where you raise and I think discuss very eloquently the use of films as virtual witnessing technologies. And this is this yeah. idea of plausibility, right? This, yeah. this is a perfect example, this Jurassic Park example of a film Film, sort of rendering a theory, in this case Horner's theory, plausible by naturalizing it using the sort of frame, using the tools of visual narrative.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the naturalization process is is very important. And I should point out, it's not Horner's theory. It was a theory um, of a lot of paleontologists. He was just one who was just championing it, and he, he got the opportunity to, to to really champion it in the movie. Um, yeah, the naturalization process is really important in giving uh, a scientific idea that type of plausibility. Um, so it's not just the visuals. So in Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. the... The visuals are really important. The CGI, the way the dinosaurs move—they uh, made it so that the dinosaurs moved in a naturalistic fashion. Um, and but it's also a narrative structure built around it, right? You have those characters interacting with those dinosaurs, makes them that much more believable. Um, and you have a narrative that's really geared towards uh, proving the, the the sort of scientists in the movies' ideas about dinosaurs as birds. Um, so. That all makes you buy into the scientific concept much more than if you were just reading a popular magazine article about dinosaurs uh, being, you know, descending into birds. Um, Yeah, that's, I think, a lot of what movies can do for science Mm -hmm. and why scientists want. Often will want to work on movies. Uh, to get their ideas across.
1: And why else would scientists want to work on movies to get their ideas across? And I know that Utah, you, you I, I asked this to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about the compensation issue. There's a
0: whole chapter oh, yeah. to this.
1: So why, yeah. why would scientists want to do this? And sort of Horner is actually an interesting example of this, given how you discuss them in here.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, he, um, There are a number of reasons why scientists do this type of consulting. And first and foremost, I should say that for them, it's fun. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, we, we all, we all can be prone to that type of celebrity culture, right? I mean, we all, um, you know, no matter, I mean, the first lady just said Rihanna was the woman she wanted to be, right? We love celebrities. So every scientist as well, uh, would would love to be interacting with movie makers. So they just like that celebrity culture. Um, but the other uh, reasons they do it, one is for the public understanding of science. Um, so someone like myself who, who teaches on science communication and, and knows that literature, we know that from the 1980s, that's when the public understanding of science movement really came forward. And, um, Uh, really became solidified so a lot of these scientists feel they have to uh do this that it's a service to science Mm -hmm. uh, that the the science in movies is wrong therefore if i work on this i'm doing a service by making sure it's right and not sort of um you know hurting the minds of of the public who can't separate fact from fiction so they do that type of thing as well um this sort of impacts their compensation, which is what you're sort of alluding to. The compensation um, issue becomes sort of um, strange because the scientists feel they need to do it as a public service. They feel, as a scientist, knowledge is free. This is this is what we, this is what we became scientists for. But by the same token, they also realize, well, you know what. I'm working on a multi-million dollar movie that's going to be making somebody else a lot of money. And I'm giving my time here. So I need some sort of compensation uh, out of this. And often they come up with sort of creative solutions, which Jack Horner did. He gets out of it um, – uh, they they give money to him to fund his research. Um, and it, like I said, as a former paleontologist, you understand – how difficult it is to find money to do that. Right. So for Jack Horner, this is this is fine. That's a good trade off. He's not getting a salary out of it. He's he's getting money that's going back towards the scientific uh, process. What he also gets out of it, and many scientists do, is publicity. Um, and even scientists need publicity. Uh, and again, if you want to show your funders that you're doing things, um, having your name attached to a big blockbuster movie that's using your ideas and your science that's very good. Uh, broader well.
1: impact and exactly. engagement. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. It's broader impact. Mm-hmm. And we can come back to this uh, as to why certain governmental organizations have become involved in this as well, because it, that's part of their remit. Um, but I could also, uh, you know, if you want to talk at this point about the danger for scientists of doing that type of thing sure,
1: whatever, whatever as well.
0: Yeah, because for, for Jack Horner, um it's great. He gets a lot of publicity. He gets some uh, research funds off of it. Um, but the filmmakers also are using him for publicity, right? They're using the famous scientist Jack Horner has authenticated our film and said that it's uh, doing, um, you know, the is as authentic as, you know, it possibly could be. But we also want to use Jack Horner, the public figure, to uh, publicize the movie. So that means that his... Um, discoveries they want to use as a film comes out. So when a Jurassic Farm, when a Jurassic Park film came out, they were using Jack Horner's discoveries to sort of publicize their work. And what what happened to him is that the uh, filmmakers asked him to sort of hold back on announcing a discovery until the movie came out, um, so that they could piggyback off of that type of publicity as well. And what happened to him, unfortunately, um, is that a lot of his scientific colleagues felt very put off by that. Um, that it seemed as if he was sort of fudging the discovery date for a particular Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton. So it made, it made it seem as if he wasn't, um, being objective, Doing this work, he was actually doing the work at the behest of filmmakers. Uh, So there, there were some dangers in getting involved in that way.
1: Right, and and you have just mentioned the sort of the different issues or not. Entirely different, but related issues that come into play when we're talking about institutional interest in getting involved in this kind of relationship, which brings us yeah. to NASA potentially. And, um, or as an example, and I just use this as an example in the book yeah. of this kind of larger scale involvement that you give us lots of examples <laughs> of, you know cases in which NASA um, supported the use of the logo and the name in the film, and some cases where they actually balked at some of the representations of NASA and astronauts. For example, Red Planet,
0: right? So- yeah, absolutely. And and NASA as an institution, it's put, it's put in a bad place, right? Um, it's publicly funded, and yet... It, what it produces is not necessarily all that useful. Um, so they're constantly having to publicize themselves. And so that's why they have become involved in making movies. And they've done it for quite a long time, going back to the 1960s. Uh, and there are sort of very strict rules for whether or not they will work with you. And you have to sign a sort of, I think they call it the Space Act Agreement, saying you'll do certain things and you won't do certain things. Um and they always maintain that they don't tell the filmmakers what they can and can't do. Um, but they are very uh, aware of how the depiction of NASA or astronauts are in movies. Mm-hmm. So they did allow the filmmakers to use the NASA logo for Mission to Mars. and They became very involved in that, or film like Space Cowboys, um, or Deep Impact, uh, Armageddon, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, but for the film Red Planet, uh, initially they became involved and then they realized that there is a scene in that movie where one, in, one astronaut inadvertently kills another astronaut, it sort of pushes him off a cliff. Um, but NASA balked at that and said, no – that gives a bad image of what astronauts are. Therefore, we cannot lend our name to this, right? We can't have that being the public image for the way astronauts uh, come across. So, yeah, and as well, there's a recent movie called Apollo 18 uh, that you may have seen, a horror movie. They they initially, they were going to be involved, and then they looked at it and said, no, we can't be involved in this. This doesn't give space exploration a very good name. Now, the, the strange thing about it in some ways is that what they really want is for NASA to be seen as heroic, right? As sort of solving problems um, and not seen as having any problems. And Mission to Mars, even though they gave their okay to it and, and sort of signed off on it, that features very heavily, the plot very heavily relies on the face on Mars, right? The controversial sort of pseudoscience um, idea that there are ancient Martians who created this uh, face. Um it's a thing that it's, – it's, it's pseudoscience that NASA has been trying for years to get people not to believe. And for them, because the movie Mission to Mars made it seem like going to Mars was a good idea, right? It supports this idea of spending money to travel to Mars. They were okay with it, and yet they really had to do a PR uh, maneuvers afterward to sort of defend and say, no, we don't legitimate the face. <laughs> you know, the face isn't uh, – uh, part of what NASA supports, so yeah, it's in many ways it's great for organizations to get involved, but there are again are always dangerous,
1: right? And I think anyone um, listening to this who's ever had the experience writing and funding application as an academic will know that there are always interests involved in getting any money for any research that you have to negotiate, right? And so in some cases, okay. this is a really kind of um, very or very um, sort of clear example of more subtle relationships that all of us have to negotiate any time we want to get any funding. And, and often public impact or potential sort of public engagement is a huge part of determining even how history research gets funded.
0: Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. And, it, yeah, that's an excellent point because um, – when I mean, here in Britain as well, there's a there's a lot of stuff with the impact. Now that the camera government has come in, um, it's been a a big shift to how is your research impacting? And you're absolutely right. In in these guys uh, cases. The movie makers expect certain things Mm -hmm. uh, from these scientists for any money or grant money that they give them, or for the recognition that they give for being involved in these movies.
1: Mm -hmm. But that's, and that's, one might say, I'm not saying you're saying, but I'll just say that that's perhaps the case you know, although not made as explicit any time, any organization gives you anybody. But you mentioned Mars, and so that lets me um, move to um, a later chapter, which is actually quite fascinating Um, as a scholar of STS, or a scholar who works in STS. And this is your chapter on um, cinematic fact-checking, where you're talking about sort of uh, what exactly counts as a scientific fact in film. And this is a really, from this point on, the chapters get very, very I think, wonderfully subtle in the way that you're deconstructing ideas from STS that perhaps we don't understand with as much nuance as we might. And you're showing us here the more nuanced ways to think about even, you know, what counts as a scientific fact and how that's actively negotiated in this relationship between cinematic and scientific communities. So in particular, um, I want to sort of um, ask you to speak to this issue of what represents an accurate description. And Mars brings this up because the issue of, you know, how does Mars become red um, in a film? um, It it sort of speaks just as much to what textbook science or what sort of public perceptions of science lend to the aura of plausibility and authenticity of a particular scientific fact, as much as it has to do with what's, you know, accepted in contemporary scientific discourse about that. So can you sort of speak to this issue of public familiarity and how that impacts what does and doesn't? get treated as a scientific fact in the experiences of the movies that you're talking about here.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and what's great about that chapter is that it's um, it is, it's very STS uh, heavy and yet it, you know it's my book 's gotten a number of reviews in sort of scientific journals and and many of them actually really like that chapter mm-hmm. they really they really can understand and see it's a
1: great
0: uh, chapter. how uh, that what we consider a fact is very negotiable mm-hmm. um, and and very up in the air in many cases um, and in that chapter, I talk about the uh, different ways that um, well, the different types of facts that uh, a filmmaker has to deal with and it's all couched in the notion of uh, accuracy when do they change something mm-hmm. and when do they feel they can actually change something um, or when do they have to make a decision is more really the case because they'll change, As a filmmaker, they don't they, they do sort of have some sort of uh, cases of conscience, you know, do we change this fact, but more or less it's just, is it easy or hard, mm-hmm. but they think through it and say, well, is this a fact that everybody knows? Is this a fact that my that my sixth grader will know? Right. If if that's the case, it's something I call public science. Right. It's something that everybody is going to know. Um, and, and in those cases, the filmmakers think very long and hard about it. Um, and and as one of the filmmakers uh, said, uh, you know, we don't want to look stupid. Right. If everybody knows this is true, and we change it, we're going to look really stupid. Um, so yeah, there is what I call public science, and so they think about that. And those they try not to change uh, for those reasons. Um, and one of the examples I give is the movie Contact, the number of prime numbers, um, where they really wanted one to be a prime because it would have just it would have made their scene that much more better. They start the number sequence with a one. And, and uh, two, it just seems more ominous. Um, and the consultant, they, she said, you know, they called her four or five times. You know, are you sure one isn't a prime? You know, we really – said once at three in the morning she got this phone call. And they're just begging her to make one a prime. But they knew, all right, even if – you know, it, grade schoolers know this. The other – so the other thing is that they have to think, well – is this something that only scientists immersed in the field are going to know? Uh, is this going to be something that only a handful of scientists in the world are going to know? Mm-hmm. And that's something I refer to as expert science. Um, so the the example that I give is again from contact uh, where it was the sound that you would get uh, from a radio signal. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting is that I talked to a couple of different consultants on it, and two consultants independently told them that the sound they were using was wrong. They said, "No, no, it would be like a pure whistle." Um, I guess in a podcast, I could try and do a whistle.
1: <laughs> I don't know
0: if that would come through. It's just a pure tone, right? It's just a pure whistle tone. And each time they said, "Oh no, that's that's," well, each time they said, "That's what it would do." They listened to the sound that they actually use, which which is a crunching noise. It's like. <laughs> And they said e- that's not that's not correct. So they took it back to the sound editor, and he was just like, "No, we're going with the more interesting sound mm-hmm. because how many people are going to know that this is wrong?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and they asked one of the scientists, he says, "Well, I don't know, maybe about twenty, thirty people." It's like, "All right, well, there you go. You know, everyone else is going to want the more interesting sound." So there's public science and there's expert science, and. The interesting thing is that public and expert science can change. Mm -hmm. Um, Back in the 1920s, a film called Frau im Mond, which I also talk about quite a bit in the book there, they walk around on the moon without spacesuits, right? Because not everybody at that time actually knew that there wasn't an atmosphere on the moon. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, that concept was actually expert science. Not everyone knew it, but once you move along to the 1950s, um, there, most people are aware there's not an atmosphere on the moon, so you have to sort of keep that. And today, that's total public science. If you had characters walking around the moon without spacesuits, you'd be you know, killed over it. The one that you were sort of alluding to about Mars is, is, the, is the more fascinating one in that it's a fact that the public thinks is true, but it's not actually true. It seems common sense but it's not scientifically true. And that I refer to as folk science. Mm-hmm. So in this case, the one you're talking about is the idea of how do you depict Mars, mm-hmm. the color of Mars and, um, filmmakers traditionally make it red. And even if you look at, uh, the most recent Mars movies, they still make it very red. And the guy I spoke to who worked on the film mission to Mars, Um, He said, yeah, they were going to film everything through a red filter to make it very red. And I said, well, didn't you tell them that Mars isn't actually red? Um, And he just, you know, he just got all excited. And he said, you know, it's the red planet. It's not the yellow brown planet. Mm -hmm. You know, people want people needed to be red. People want it to be red. And that's when I understood the idea of audience expectations being a major driver of the decisions filmmakers make. So... Folk science is even harder to overturn than public science. Because if everybody expects it to be read and it's not, they're gonna walk away saying, Oh, your movie's inaccurate. You know, Mars wasn't read. Um, so this idea of audience expectations really drives a lot of the decisions that filmmakers make.
1: And this is actually something that persists through the next couple of chapters where you're moving us from um, cases I mean, from this particular case in which there's a clear um, perceived distinction between folk science and or popular science, right, and expert science to cases where there's actually flexibility or uncertainty in the expert science itself. And you spoke to this a little bit um, already um, when talking about... Corners um in Jurassic Park, the bird-like dinosaurs, and also talking about this idea of the, the Earth's core um, being a giant uranium ball in this movie, The Core, which yeah. is also a wonderful example. But yeah. you sort of move in the next chapter to cases which are even more um, striking in some ways, which is um, sort of the cases of fantastical science, right? Like these, yeah. The Hulk or Hulk. It's just Hulk.
0: Yeah. Right? It's, it's Hulk. just
1: Hulk. Okay, yeah, it's yeah. just Hulk. Um, and here we get to an issue that I'd love to hear more um, about, which is the sort of how expectations, either scientific and or public and or cinematic, um, affect the sort of construction of scientific plausibility in cases that everybody knows aren't going to happen. Um, yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's a, another particularly fascinating chapter.
0: Um, yeah, it- yeah, no, absolutely, and 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 the idea, like, to just sort of reiterate this idea of audience expectations. If I were to rewrite the book uh-huh. today, and after having talked to more filmmakers and more TV people, um, it's it's a phrase that they constantly use. In, in what they're doing. The audience expects this to happen. Uh and I would just play up that even more in the book because it does drive a lot of their creative uh decisions. Uh but yeah, the the notion of sort of fantastical uh, uh depictions. Um fantastical science uh, i think is what i call it mm-hmm. um i sh- i uh when i teach i show my students the opening credits for hulk which has this great sort of him um figuring out you know the, all the genetic modification and all that sort of thing that i ask my students to say okay is that an accurate depiction of science in that movie and it because they're mostly science I teach mostly science students and they get all confused and they're starting to work through it and I say you know no I'm not asking you if it's an accurate depiction of the comic book is it an accurate scientific depiction? because as science students they always think oh yeah it has to be accurate there has to be something accurate you know and and then ultimately they come to the right decision which is. It can't be accurate. <laughs> it's the Hulk. The Hulk doesn't exist. There's no way for the Hulk to exist in the real world. So asking whether or not it's accurate is really the wrong question. That doesn't mean uh, anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, this, this idea of uh, audience expectations, though, also gets at the, the notion of the audience expects the Hulk to be a certain way right? The audience expects the Hulk to be green. The audience expects the Hulk to be invincible to bullets. The audience expects the Hulk, uh, to be super strong. And so when you're making a movie like that, you have to play towards those. And so the scientific explanation that you come up with has to have those elements. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't have a pink Hulk, right? Cause the audience expects the Hulk to actually be green. Mm-hmm. So when you're doing that type of thing, um, Uh, you, you have to play towards what the audience is going to want and the job of a science consultant, uh, the, if they're a good science consultant, that's what they're going to be, uh, doing is to not change what you do, Mm -hmm. but to, um, help you make it seem plausible Mm -hmm. and logical. Uh, and if you want, I could talk about the other example in the book, um, well, the, the two examples I talk about in that chapter, one is a movie called Solar Crisis, which mm-hmm. um, was useful. It didn't come out in the U.S., but it's useful uh, because the science consultant on it, uh, a guy named Richard Terrell from JPL, He, it was a movie about going into the sun, mm-hmm. and he said he sat there in the meeting and he just kept raising his hand and saying, no, we can't go into the sun. That's impossible. Why don't you do heliomatography instead or trying to find right ra- reasons? And then he said after, you know, 40 minutes of that, his friend next to him nudged him and just said, Rich, th- that's the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the audience expects them to go into the sun. So they have to go into the sun. And he realized his job was just to make it more plausible for them to do that. Now he worked on a movie called the core, which we've talked about. And in that case, he actually walked off the set, um, and, and, and in protest, he came back later. As he told me, he said, look, I work, I do a lot of work with filmmakers. I can't be known as a guy who's going to walk out on filmmakers. I'll help them finish the thing. But the reason he worked, walked out is that they came to him and said, this movie is about the core stopping. The, our explanation is the core stops spinning. Mm-hmm. Um, Help us make that accurate. And he said, well, no, no, let me come up with a different explanation for why they have to go. I I get it. They have to go to the middle of the earth. I I get that. Let me come up with something else. And they said, no, 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 that's the explanation we came up with. Um, Help us make that good. So for the science consultants, it really was this idea of they are fine – with the sort of fantastical stuff. But what they want is for you to let them come up with reasons to make it more plausible. Don't tell them the thing and say, make it plausible. Let them come up with it the first time around.
1: Mm-hmm now the sort of as we move to the final chapters of the book um, one of the really wonderful things that chapter eight and nine do is really move us concretely from sort of focusing on these negotiations as they impact the way the films portray these phenomena to really focusing back on how this film portrayal is really concretely in a number of really very evocative and fascinating cases impacting um, in some cases the actual development of of scientific knowledge and technologies, and also it sort of is being actively manipulated by scientific consultants to evoke a particular public response to a scientific idea. And so you do this in Chapter 8 um, by sort of looking at the way consultants sort of find the film medium to be a method of conveying to the public that an issue needs more attention, right? Um, And one of the Sort of, there are many wonderful examples in here um, of scientific disaster films. Um, And in particular, um, there are, there's, uh, you mentioned the day after tomorrow in its um, sort of evocation of the potential impacts of a way of understanding. The repercussions of climate change, right? I'll be being very really yeah. careful with the way I'm phrasing <laughs> this, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: Um,
1: and uh, and also the other example, which brings up two films that recur throughout the throughout the book, um, which is the films Deep Impact and Armageddon, um, and they're used to convey a particular idea of the danger of near Earth objects. Um, yeah. So, I'd love could you speak to sort of either one of these cases and sort of say a little bit about the significance for the larger argument of of the book in the chapter.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I refer to this as the War Games effect. It's a phrase I'm borrowing from a film scholar named Joel Black. Um, Although, again, if I were to redo it, I also talk about them being sort of ghosts of Christmas future, (laughs) right? Because the idea is, like in the Dickens novel, showing the public what could happen if they don't take a certain path, if they don't fund... Uh, if, or if they don't start believing that climate change is real or if they don't start funding ways to search the sky for near-Earth objects, then this future is going to come to pass and it's a horrible future where the Earth is hit by an asteroid um, and we all die uh, kind of thing. Um, Day After Tomorrow is, is actually fascinating because it, it evoked a lot of controversy um, because scientists didn't know how to handle it. But on the one hand, you had this film that was raising awareness – about climate change, Mm -hmm. which is what they really wanted. They wanted people to take climate change seriously. It was an election year. It was 2004. Um, The filmmakers were hoping this was going to raise awareness about the Bush administration's policies on climate change. Uh, But on the other hand, it's a film that was inevitably going to have scientific inaccuracies. Uh, The climate change was going to happen too quickly. The way in which it happened was based on a, a... a hypothesis that is legitimate but marginalized um, and the sort of extent of the exchange, uh, the climate change was also very um, uh, extreme. So the, the scientists responding to it didn't know what they wanted to do, whereas the scientist who worked on it, he was of the mind, look, I know there's going to be inaccuracies in here, but the power of this film to put climate change in the public consciousness uh, – is so great that I have to work on this movie. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the, the way, the reason the filmmakers asked him to be the science consultant is not because he's the world's greatest climate change scientist. It's because he was involved in a lot of political work. So at the uh, being involved uh, in the Rio discussions, the Kyoto protocol, he knew all of that. He, he advised a lot of members of Congress about climate change policy. So they wanted him to make sure that the political aspects were, were right. The science policy interface rang true. And um, no matter what those who were against climate change thought about that film, they knew that those aspects were right, that those rang true. Their position was was done properly. The science of politics was done properly. Um, so yeah, it, it really can call attention. And it did. It, there was a lot of discussion around that time. And um, in conjunction with An Inconvenient Truth, you could say both of those films really raised the discussion in terms of awareness of people thinking about those.
1: Right. And this is an I I know we've taken up a whole lot of your time, but I don't wanna let you go and wrap this up before asking you about um chapter nine a little bit. But, and this is a chapter. Yeah. Where you're um, talking about consultants using cinematic representation of particular technologies or scientific advances to reduce anxiety, you say, and stimulate desire in audiences to see the potential yeah. become the actual. And this is, I think, of particular interest um, to historians of technology as well. And for sort of people working on technology studies, this was a really interesting chapter in that case. Um, now, you present an idea in this chapter that I'll just, I'm going to phrase this as just asking you to say a bit about that and um, perhaps Uh talk about any of the examples that you find most fascinating in here that speak to this. And this is the idea of diegetic prototypes. So cinematic representations or depictions of future technologies. So can you talk a little bit about what those are and some examples that you think are particularly um, important in discussing this phenomenon?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, it's got sort of a funny name, diegetic prototype, but the reason for that is, uh, it's a prototype. It's the idea that it's a technology that has, doesn't exist yet, but that people are thinking about. And it's different than technologies where science fiction filmmakers maybe make something up. These are engineers and scientists who are thinking about these ideas. They've crafted these prototypes and they've put them into the film, uh, into what we call the diegeses, right, which is the actual film world. So it exists within the diegeses as an actual object that the characters are interacting with. And these are important because it socializes the technology. It gets people thinking about what these technologies can be and what they can do. Um, And it makes them... As I said, it sort of stimulates desire. It makes them think, I want that technology. Um, One of my favorite examples comes from the film Minority Report. Uh, It's a a, a science consultant named John Underkoffler. He got a a PhD from the MIT Media Lab. And as he was working on his PhD, the filmmakers went through – they were touring MIT. um, And they saw his work and said, oh, yeah, that's something we want to put uh, in the movie. And when he got hired as a consultant, he really approached it as a sort of R&D uh, project that he was going to work through what was called the gestural interface, which uh, if anyone remembers the film, it's where Tom Cruise moves around data on the screen with his hands. Um, and so under Koffler, he worked through an entire language for the interface. Uh, he, he worked through exactly what you would do with the interface. Um, and he even included what could potentially be seen as a quote-unquote flaw of the gestural interface. Um, He actually walked up to Spielberg and said, I've got an idea to make this thing look more realistic. Um, I'm going to add what would be seen as a flaw. And at first Spielberg was like, no, can't do it. You know, we want this. This needs to look perfect. That's technologies and movies are all supposed to look perfect. And he said, no, this will make it look even more real because we all know technology is flawed. Right. We all, we've all we all encountered flaws on our laptops uh, every day. And so what he had him do was someone goes to shake his hand, and when he goes to shake his hand, all the data on the screen gets shunted into the corner. So it seems like a problem of the system. But in reality, for Underkoffler, A, it made it seem more real. It seems like, yeah, this is real technology. We can see how this could be, become a, re- a reality. What it also did was one of the criticisms of these types of interfaces is that they're not sensitive enough, right? that you can't actually move data around with your hands. By doing that, it makes it look too sensitive. Mm-hmm. So it actually played into what he wanted people to come away with, is to say, yeah, it could work, and it could work too well mm-hmm. uh, in that sort of, mm-hmm. in sort, of in sort of way. And because of that film, he got calls uh, from um, venture capitalists saying, is that real? If not, can we give you money to make it real? Uh, and through that, he got the money to create a real prototype. Uh, it's called G-Speak technology. And from that prototype, he was able to get money from the U.S. Defense Department uh, to turn it into a real system uh, that they're now using. So, yeah, that's one of my favorite sort of examples. And it really is this idea of film contextualizing and socializing these technologies Um and I should point out that the notion of the diegetic prototype has actually been picked up within the design community. Uh, of the things in the book, it's the one thing where uh, people are actually using this as a real term. Uh, there's a guy at, uh, in, at the Nokia Future Laboratory called Julian Bleeker who's really a champion of this and is, and talks about this in terms of design fiction that he uses. Um, and I should say one of my proudest uh, things is uh, the science fiction author Bruce Sterling uh, blogged about diegetic prototypes and sort of used and talked about them and championed them uh, as something the design community should be using, thinking about using fiction, to create technologies, and get people thinking about them in different ways.
1: That's fantastic. Oh. Well, David, we've um, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I don't want to take up um, too much more. But there's um, there's clearly a, a ton of stuff in the book that we didn't have a, t- a chance to talk about. There's a, a huh. whole wealth of examples and ideas and engagements with STS literature, and just really wonderful um, anecdotes in here. For listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, is there anything that you want to point out um, to make sure that they know before we close up today?
0: Um. No, I think we've covered uh, quite a bit of different uh, ground. Um, I mean, the one thing that we didn't talk about a lot is this idea of acting like a scientist. Right. That was one of the things that I talk about uh, quite a bit, um, which, for anyone seeing the new Prometheus film, that's that's actually what's wrong with the film, is that the scientists don't actually act like real scientists would act. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things I address in the book is, what does it mean to be a real scientist? What does it mean to act like that? Um, so yeah, that, would, that that sort of aspect of it, I think, is the one that I would also sort of point people towards a uh, sort of discussion of, yeah, what does it mean to be a scientist and to portray one on the screen?
1: Great. And do you have any plans to write about Prometheus or teach <laughs> using Prometheus? Or, I, mean, I have well, to ask, I, uh, I just saw yeah, it yeah, a couple th- nights ago.
0: So. <laughs> yeah, well, by the time the podcast gets... There. The, the blog post I've done will probably be out uh, there's a group in Los Angeles I should mention as well called the Science and Entertainment Exchange that um, is through the National Academy of Sciences they now do they give scientists out uh, to filmmakers or, uh, uh, quite frequently for their blog I did a post on Prometheus my next book that I'm working on at the moment uh, the tentative title is Playing God Science, Religion and Cinema uh, and it's looking at um, how Scient- or religious communities have responded to movies. So I'm looking at a lot of censorship archives and uh, looking at a lot of contemporary films. So the blog post is about uh, how Christian gr- – well, it's historically about how Christian groups have responded to the idea of alien visitors to the earth. Um, But also focusing on how Christian groups have responded to that aspect of Prometheus, uh, the idea that alien visitors have come here in the past and created us out of their DNA. Um, So, yeah, that's sort of the next, uh, the next. Uh, book that I'm working on. And there will be a blog post on that within the next week uh, at the Science and Entertainment Exchange.
1: Wonderful. So all um, Science and Entertainment Exchange. So I'll try to make sure to put a link to that also in the, the write-up on the website. Well, okay, great. Hey, David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It's really, it's a it's a fascinating book. It's a wonderful read. And um, I've had a good time talking with you about it. So thank you.
0: Yeah, no, thanks. It was a pleasure for me, certainly.
1: Thank you. Yeah. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks so much for joining us, and we will see you next time.